We're now going to have our main Bible reading, which is Luke chapter 7. We're going to read all the way to 8 verse 3, so the first three verses of chapter 8. So Luke 7. And it says this. After he, Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant. Do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, Not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bear, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he called many people of, dis- uh, of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor has good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? 
a reed shaken by the wind. What then did you go and see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptised with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptised by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chutza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means.
Well, in a minute, we're going to have a look at that passage. But before we do, just a couple of things to mention. Immediately after the sermon, there's an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of the things we've been thinking about. Um, So I mentioned that now so you know it's coming up. And if you've got any questions related to what we've been talking about, that will be a good opportunity to do it. There's also a sermon outline in your service sheet, which you're free to use if it's helpful, but you can ignore if it's not. And then finally, and most importantly, let's pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you sent your Son into the world, and that as he comes, he comes to um, tax collectors and sinners who recognize him. But he also comes to Pharisees and lawyers who reject the purpose of God. We pray, Lord, that we take these warnings seriously, pay careful attention, so that we might not miss out on the salvation that you have offered. Amen. When Christians talk about, their, uh, about God's plan for their lives, they invariably, invariably mean something quite extravagant. An extravagant purpose that God has just for them. Something where they can really make a difference to the world. It might be that God has plans for them to become a missionary, to be the next Hudson Taylor. It may be God has plans for them to go into the ministry to become the next Charles Spurgeon. It may be God plans for them to start a Christian charity to become the next William Booth. God has a plan for every one of his followers. You just need to listen. But of course, anyone with a rational bone in their body might find all this a little discouraging. It seems that most Christians never manage to divine the particular plan that God has for their life. Because, let's be honest, the vast majority of Christians just live fairly normal lives. Even those who do become missionaries, of which there are many, They never have the impact that Hudson Taylor had. Or Christians who become pastors never preach to large numbers of people as Spurgeon did. Or Christians who start charities struggle to have the same impact as the Salvation Army. Where has it all gone wrong? Well, in today's passage, we may find an answer. Have a look at... Luke 7, verse 29 to 30, says this. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. In this verse, we notice that the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God. What can this be referring to? But notice as well that the Pharisees and lawyers are being contrasted to the tax collectors. 
it appears the tax collectors have accepted the purpose of God. It is interesting that there seems to be this affinity between Jesus and tax collectors. What is it about the tax collector that causes Jesus to gravitate to them? And why are the tax collectors so accepting of Jesus? Some people have affirmed that Luke is the gospel for the poor and needy. But that isn't the tax collector. They aren't poor and needy. They are rich and greedy. If anything, they take advantage of the poor. And they do so to make themselves rich. They take more money than they are required and keep the extra for themselves. And yet, Luke 7 verse 29 implies that the tax collectors have accepted God's plan. Now in contrast to the tax collector, we have the centurion at the beginning of the chapter. He's highly thought of by everyone. In fact, it's quite striking the lengths his advocates have to go to to persuade Jesus that the centurion is worthy of his help. Have a quick look at verses 3 to 4. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you this have you do this for him. His friends think he's wonderful. So why would Jesus have any resistance at all of visiting him? But then that's what's interesting. When Jesus does agree to visit, the centurion then sends yet more friends out, this time to stop him from coming any closer. What's significant here is, is despite all his friends communicating his worthiness for a visit from Jesus, the centurion insists he is not worthy. And so he prevents Jesus from finishing his journey. But this doesn't mean that all is lost for the centurion's dying servant. Remember, that's the reason the centurion makes contact with Jesus because his servant is about to die. And the centurion knows that Jesus has authority over creation, so that if Jesus speaks, what he says will happen. And Jesus' geography, or the distance he is from the point of impact, won't compromise the effectiveness of his word. You see, the centurion knows Jesus. And it's at this point that the centurion now makes an impression upon Jesus. Here we have a man who has, he would never see Jesus. He refused to have him visit his house, and yet he appears to know Jesus better than his closest disciples. But actually, this is only a very superficial reading of the text. What we've done is we've missed something extremely significant and important. 
because the reason the advocates are necessary to speak on behalf of this centurion and the uh, reason the centurion refused to host Jesus is because the centurion was a Gentile. If a Jew enters a Gentile's house, the Jew becomes ceremonially unclean. And this Roman centurion knew this. This is why he didn't go and see Jesus himself in the first place. Instead, notice he sends Jewish representatives who knew his reputation as a Gentile who feared God. And it's this that makes Jesus marvel at the centurion's response all the more significant. The Jews, they're God's people. And the Jews, as God's people, should have recognised Jesus, their Messiah. But they didn't. But here is a Gentile who, despite his desire to be included, cannot because he's a Gentile. And yet he trusts Jesus in a way that no one else in Jerusalem has even though they're part of God's own people. At the end of chapter 7, a Pharisee called Simon invites Jesus to his house. It's when Jesus is at the house that a woman comes weeping over and kissing Jesus' feet as she anoints his feet with ointment. The woman's placed herself in an extremely vulnerable position by entering Simon's house. This man who's an outstanding member of society and making a scene that really has the potential to further damage her already poor reputation. And it's at this point that uh, Simon makes two evaluations. He evaluates Jesus as not being a true prophet because Simon's evaluation of the woman is she's a sinner. Something that Simon believes Jesus has failed to recognise. After this, Jesus then makes his evaluation. And notice that he turns Simon's evaluation on its head. Jesus commends the woman for what she has done and exposes Simon's lack of consideration for Jesus as the apparent host. In the end, the woman makes a better host than Simon, who has failed. But of course, once again, there's much more going on here. Once again, the woman knows something about Jesus that has completely escaped Simon. The woman never speaks, she only acts. And so it's through what she does we can begin to see what she knows. But we can also add to this Jesus' explanation of all that's happened. So have a look at verse 42. We read, when, uh, so let's go back to 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 When they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he cancelled the larger debt. 
So at first glance, Jesus' explanation is, the woman has demonstrated a great love for Jesus because she's had her many sins forgiven. She's the one who had the large debt forgiven. But notice then what happens when we read verse 47. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Here it seems that the love comes first. It's because she loved her, loved Jesus, that her sins are now forgiven. But then when you get to verse 48, which says, and Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven, it looks like it isn't until we get to verse 48 that her sins are actually forgiven. So, which comes first? Do you demonstrate your love for the one who you know can forgive your sins? Or, after having your sins forgiven, do you then demonstrate your love for him? It seems quite tricky because she's been forgiven because of a great love while at the same time she has been forgiven the reason she's been forgiven is because of her great love in fact I'm getting totally confused is this problematic or does this simply paint the full picture of how the woman's feelings both anticipating what she believed Jesus could do while at the same time she understands at a much deeper level why she sought Jesus out once he proclaimed her sins forgiven. Whichever way we look at it, ultimately this sinful woman knew Jesus in a way Simon the Pharisee would never come to know Jesus. Well, let's head back to the tax collector that we started with. Let's have another read of verse 29 and 30. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptised with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptised by him. The centurion was an impressive man. He acknowledged that he was a man of great authority, and when he spoke, those beneath him obeyed. However, when it came to Jesus, the centurion was extremely humble. He admitted that he wasn't worthy to have Jesus come under his roof. Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to his home, but then dismissed Jesus as misled because he allowed the woman to touch him. Whereas the woman humbled herself before Jesus, demonstrating her love for him because she knew she needed forgiveness. And then verse 29 to 30 take us all the way back to John the Baptist's ministry. And John the Baptist came to prepare the way for the Lord. And his preparation involved calling the people to humble themselves and to repent, to turn away from their sin and to turn to God. 
the tax collectors did repent. And this was demonstrated by a willingness to be baptized by John. But the Pharisees would not repent. And they would not they were not happy for John to baptize them. And in doing so, they rejected the purpose of God. Now this becomes particularly revealing given how we began our sermon. It's not unusual for those who believe God has a plan for their lives to take God to task. I was meant for big things. So why haven't you kept your promise? Who does this remind us of from today's account? It may be none of the characters, but what we can notice is that this attitude toward God is the polar opposite of the centurion who turns Jesus away from his house because he isn't worthy. Or the tax collectors who give away their money so they can be baptised. Or the sinful woman who, with no regard for herself, is willing to potentially humiliate herself in Simon's house. And what's intriguing in today's passage is it highlights what is God's purpose for his people, for all of his people. It includes being humble before the Creator, and it includes a desire to repent from sin. In fact, this really is the essence of God's purpose for his people. So much so that if I have humbled myself before God, and if I have repented and turned to God, it genuinely doesn't matter the job that I'm doing. It only matters that I've repented. I can be a missionary, but if I haven't repented, I've rejected God's purpose. I could be the greatest preacher there's ever been, but if I haven't repented, I am opposing God. And I can have the biggest charity in the world, but if I haven't repented, I'm at odds with God. Yet I can fulfill any variety of menial tasks. And if I've repented, then I, like the tax collectors, have declared God just. I'm at peace with him. That's God's plan for our lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have chosen to include us into, in the plan that you have for us. That you have given us uh, minds to accept the truth of your word and to be convinced of the truth of the words that Jesus speaks, so that we might repent and believe in the one who brings our salvation, so that we can be reconciled to you at peace with our Heavenly Father and look forward to and anticipate the new heavens and the new earth where you'll wipe every tear from our eyes. Amen.
Well, as you, I'm sure you'll remember, I mentioned at the start there have been opportunities to ask questions or comments in line with the things that we've been thinking about. Uh, we normally get through about three, if I don't take too long. Um, so any questions, comments, thoughts? Yes, so verse, just to repeat for the recording, verse 24 to 27, we've got this peculiar thing where Jesus says, what did you go out to see? Was it a reed shaken by the wind? Was it a man dressed in fine clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing live in luxury in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. So um, I think everything that comes before uh, verse 26 is, I, th I think it's just quite, I say simply, it doesn't come across as particularly simply, but just sort of like, you know, why did you go out there? You didn't go out for this, you didn't go out that, you didn't go out for the other. This is not, you know, you, you wouldn't have gone out there for um, to see fine, clo fine clothing because there weren't fine clothing to see. You'd go to the palace, that's where you'd see fine clothing. Um, but I think, I, I and I, th I did read the commentary on this, but it, it feels a little bit like there's a bit of confusion as to how it gets there. But the whole drive is to get to the, you went out there to see a prophet. And then Jesus is saying, but I tell you, you know, you don't even appreciate the magnitude of the prophet that you've seen. You know, this is the prophet. Not the prophet, because obviously Jesus is the prophet, but he is the one who prepares the way for the Lord. Um, so I think that's what, all that is doing, yeah, it's just leading to that point. On the reflection, we're going to tease out a little bit more, verse 28, uh, what it means for John to be the greatest, and yet everyone else to be greater than him. So we'll save that for that if you're right. <laughs> Any other questions, thoughts, comments? Oh, um, as Josh did there, I didn't pick up on everything, so you can ask a question about something in the passage that I didn't touch upon, or further explore something we have thought about. Yeah, good point. So let's have a quick look then. So just to repeat the recording, um, uh, sorry, repeat the thing, question for the recording. Verse 29, when all people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptised with the baptism of John. And so the question is, we don't want to be in a position where we are standing above God and evaluating him. We are humans created in his image we're not, it's not appropriate for us to evaluate the creator. God is just. Um, our opinion of that is irrelevant in many respects. We've just kind of got to get into line. Now, so that's helpful because that, that basically begins to explore what it can't be. And it can't mean that. You know, it can't mean that um, the tax collectors 
particularly given the context, they've come, you know, we've talked about how the centurion was humble. The tax collectors themselves are reflecting that same humility. We've also explored earlier on where, in an earlier chapter, where you've got Peter standing before Jesus and he's humble because of the, um, well, he's basically scared of him because he's a sinful man and says, keep away from me. And yet Jesus excludes him. So everything about what we're expecting from the people who are being accepted is that they are humbling themselves before God. So again, it doesn't really work for them to be evaluating him, which is what the question implies, and I've not got there yet. So <laughs> you're thinking, is he actually going to answer the question? Is he just going to reiterate the question over and over again? Um, so I think what we're supposed to understand from this is that it's not that they evaluate God, but rather they get in line. So they um, don't continue to oppose him, but rather they um, take on board his purpose for them, in the sense that they humbly come and um, are baptised by John in repentance. So I think it's that idea, um, but not probably put how we'd expect it to be put. So it's more that they get in line with God and his purpose, um, but just put in a way that we might not expect it to be put. I mean, that, that kind of has to be the meaning, doesn't it? It can't be anything else, otherwise everything falls apart. The whole world falls apart. Time for one more? Yes, Simon. Oh, no. Yes, I can. I did. So did everyone else. So did I, because I confused everyone. Okay, verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. So it looks there in verse 47, it's like, what comes first she loved Jesus, therefore her sins have been forgiven. 48, um, you've got, and Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. So, 47, she loved much, Let's go back to 42. 42, in the explanation, you've got, when they could not pay, he cancelled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? So there you see, the debt's been cancelled, or the sins have been forgiven, and then they love. So why does the woman love? Because her sins have been cancelled. But then when we get to 47, she loved much. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much. So there it seems to be that she loved Jesus, and that's why her sins were forgiven. So you've got these two alternating views. Is it because a debt was cancelled that she loved Jesus? Or is it because she loved Jesus that her debt was cancelled? 
And the answer is yes. <laughs> well, I think this is the thing, isn't it? I think it's, it's exploring the whole compl complexity of sinfulness. She cannot approach Jesus unless she already believes that he can forgive her sins. So she approaches with a love, knowing that he is the source of her sins to be forgiven. But there's also a sense in that, does she, as she goes through the process of humbling herself before him, and then when she, he turns around and pronounces, your sins are forgiven, how much did she realise that was going to happen or to what extent it was going to happen or that he would actually pronounce it affirmatively when she first approached him? And this is, I mean, this is true of... If you think back to when you first became a Christian, you were in awe of Jesus because of what he'd done for you. But if you think now to what you know that you didn't know then, you're like, well, you know, it was only, we were only scratching the surface about then. Now you've got a much fuller picture. So I think that's the sort of thing that's being seen here in the complexity of her experience and emotions. You've got to, you know, she's been convinced in her mind that he's the person to go to. And happily humbling herself before her, he becomes much more than she imagined. That sort of thing. That's what I was trying to get out. Okay, uh, we've had three questions, so we'll leave it there. Obviously, we can continue to talk about these things afterwards with one another, uh, or you can come and ask me if you really want to. Uh, we're going to uh, stand to sing our next song, which is How Deep the Father's Love for Us. <laughs>